Hello, and welcome to Human Is My Label. This is your host, Emily Purry. I am a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sibling, and a former athlete. I work full time. I am the founder of Rapid, a nonprofit organization, and I'm legally blind. I am so excited about opening the conversation about everything equity. We will primarily be talking about disability, as that is my lived experience, and it is often the minority left out of the equity conversation. I am passionate about equity for all identities, as I have family members from the communities of color, LGBTQIA, disabilities, and we span all ages. It is my goal to normalize these conversations, get people comfortable with the uncomfortable, and include everyone. After all, we are all human. Hello, everybody, and happy Monday. We are here starting week seven of COVID-19 quarantine. And I thought today would be a great opportunity to take a whole entire show to talk about six-year-old questions. I have a bunch of six-year-old questions that I need to get to. And so today I thought I would take a whole show and address some of those six-year-old questions so we could catch up. Once a week is not gonna be enough for all of them that are coming in. So we're gonna do that. I'm gonna go back and forth and then we have a special six-year-old question at the end that is going to involve my husband, Jameson. So if you haven't tuned in with us before and don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about these six-year-old questions, go ahead and stop this episode, go back to number two, which is called six-year-old questions, and that will explain more about uh, my, my approach to equity work, especially when it comes to disability. But the short version is the questions that we wanted to ask as six-year-olds for anybody we saw that had a disability, things that we didn't understand about disability, and that we never got answered as a six-year-old. So truly, we are all still six-year-olds when it comes to the conversation of disability. And so that is the very short, sweet version of six-year-old questions. So we're gonna dive right in. Of course, I have my famous reader, Jameson, reading the questions for me so that I know um, what they are. And then I'll address each question one at a time. So. I hope you enjoy this. I hope you're safe and well and happy at home. And we are moving through this together. What is the line where inclusivity should stop? Who decides what group deserves inclusion? Okay, so this is one I get often because when we look at policies, especially in the workplace, this is where we get this a lot, workplace uh, policies that include more than one people. One of the really common one is around chemical sensitivity. Now, people with disabilities who have chemical sensitivities have allergies or reactions or actually are physically uh, drained, sick over different chemicals. And so where we see this come up of equity versus inclusion is when we talk about um, typically African-American hair products. They are tend to be very strong in scent. And the people on one side of the fence who are looking for inclusion as far as uh, having a scent-free environment would like that to be a policy in the workplace. And that means we're excluding typically African-American 
mostly women who wear hair products that tend to be heavily scented. And so this is a common question, and I hate to tell everybody this, but there is no good answer. If we create a, uh, a scent-free policy, we are excluding those with disabilities who have physical reactions and sensitivities to chemical scents. Now, if we say, okay, we are in a scent-free environment, now we're excluding the African-American women, typically, who, who wear those products mostly for their hair and skin, a lot of lotions. Um, and so there is no good answer for this. We can do the best we can as far as, you know, heavy perfumes, heavy colognes, those can definitely be stopped. Um, if we don't wear deodorant, some people, if they don't wear deodorant, they will smell the opposite way that a lot of people find um, intolerable. And so some people have to wear scented deodorant in order to not have extremely bad body odor. So there is no good answer for this one. I, I wish there was. It's something that a lot of organizations, a lot of companies, a lot of um, people are working on because they want to do the best they can for the people who have chemical sensitivities. And they want to allow people to wear the products they need to wear in order to, to benefit themselves, whether it's their skin, their hair, their, their bodies, their body odor. So there's no good answer for this one, but even considering it as a problem or how can we approach it is the best way to start and allowing a little bit of both sides of it. Uh, obviously, <laughs> we know social distancing oh too well right now, but if there's somebody who wears a considerable amount of products that happens to be sitting next to another person who has a chemical sensitivity, trying to avoid seating them right next to each other. Or if there is the opportunity for somebody to have an office, that's a, an opportunity as well. So being creative, being uh, sensitive, and trying to come up with solutions, not just saying we can't do it. I think that's the biggest thing for this kind of a, a situation is how can we do our best instead of just ignoring it and saying, oh, this person's super sensitive or this person just always complains about this or that. And also making sure that other cultures and other communities are not feeling attacked in this situation. So no good answer on this one. I apologize. But there is, I do have some fragrance free um, or fragrance sensitive policies if people are looking for that. How do you make accommodations for people with disabilities without singling them out? This one reminds me of a common um, situation that's happening a lot right now because of cubicle situations. A lot of people want to go to the open cubicle environment because there's not, you know, walls and barriers between people. And as much as that's great and wonderful, when people like myself, especially, um, I'm ADHD and I have the vision disability. If I have people walking past me or walking around me all the time and I have ADHD, I'm, it's very hard for me to focus. Um, also, because I sit so close to my monitor, people stare at me constantly. They're like, whoa, what is she doing? Um, and so I become very sensitive to it and I have a hard time not um, reacting to that, the, the people staring at me. And so I'll back away from my computer, which means I'm stopping my work in order to appear quote-unquote normal to somebody and that's something that I yes can be cognitive of it but it's also something that's it's hard for me to 
um, see it happening and not be sensitive to it. So obviously if somebody's staring at me, um, it's uncomfortable anyways, or staring at anybody, it's uncomfortable. So the open chemical environments is very exclusive, but how can we avoid that? You can offer options. Uh, if you're gonna rearrange your workspace and there are two options or three options for everybody, not just for people with disabilities. What type of workstation works best for you in this situation? Um, and so, yes, there's turnover, there's different things that happen, but work that into your budgeting, work that into your re reconfiguration that, you know, as we hire new people, we may need to adjust cubicles, but that's something you offer everyone, not just the person with a disability. Think about it, if you walk into an open cubicle environment and there's only one cubicle with high walls, obviously that person's a target. They're, you're drawing attention to them, you're singling them out because somebody's gonna say, why does that one cubicle have high walls? And you're gonna say, oh, well, uh, and you either disclose that person has a disability or you say uh, just because that uh, certain work situation is and you stumble through that. So yes, it, that's one of the examples that I thought of when I saw this question. Otherwise, if you feel like you're singling them, them out, you really need to make sure you're addressing their needs and not what you think they need. If they need extra time for this and that, if they need um, extra breaks, I'm not sure what the need is, then if they are telling you that that's what they need, then you go with it and you don't have to feel badly about it. That's what they've addressed as best for them. And so you make sure you're having those conversations, you make sure you're addressing those conversations, and you make sure to check in with them during check-ins, not out in front of everybody, not singling them out. Oh, Emily, is this the best way to do this for this training in a room of 25, 30 people? So make sure you're having those conversations. And that's one of the biggest things is you have to start having these conversations in order to maintain them so it's not awkward and you're not singling people out. Do you find that sight impairment has made you a better listener? A better listener? Hmm, no. Um, somebody who hears more things than sighted people? Yes. Um, I'm glad my husband isn't in the room right now, but a better listener means that I actually um, engage with the conversation. I'm an active listener and I'm not having my own thoughts. Absolutely not. Just because my eyes work does not mean my brain doesn't go overdrive and try to fill in all the blanks and um, hear something totally different than the person is saying. Now, am I more, is my hearing better than other people's? No, but I'm definitely more in tune with my hearing than sighted people because it's just another source of information coming in. Um, you can ask my kids. I can't see what they're doing. I can't, I don't even, I, but I know that my daughter's in the bathroom digging through the drawer or whatever. I can tell you what she's doing and I can call it out. And both, all three of my kids have always been like, how do you even know what I'm doing? And so <laughs> I'm definitely more in tune with my hearing, but it's not better than anybody else's. I don't have supersonic hearing. A lot of people think if one scent goes, or yeah, sense goes away, the other senses pick up and that's not true it's just that we're more aware of them because they give us the information that we're not getting through those senses um, and so you know I have talked to people who are deaf or hard of hearing that they see they're more observant than other people because they have to in order to get um, an equal amount of information 
as a sighted and, and deaf person. I mean, a sighted and hearing person. So it's not that any of those senses are better than anybody else's, but we are more aware of them, absolutely, for sure. Um, and that goes for all the senses. I, I know I can feel a lot more than my husband or my kids. I don't have to look at it to plug something in. I don't have to look in my purse to find something. I can feel it and find it immediately, pretty quickly. Um, so my other senses are definitely, I'm more keen to them, but they're not any better than anybody else's. Equity work requires trust. How can we build trust with our coworkers to do equity work better? I love that you pointed out, this person pointed out that equity work takes trust. And the best way, especially for dominant culture, is to continue to try. And when you screw up, because you will, when you screw up, you try and learn. When you screw up, you don't get defensive. When you screw up, you are able to say, thank you for telling me this. Thank you for informing me. Thank you for sharing your opinion with me instead of going on the defense and saying, I didn't mean that, I didn't mean to, I didn't, I, I meant, I, I, I meant to do this, I meant to do that. The more defensive we get with whatever identity we're working with, um, one, of the, one of the ones is gender pronouns. For the people that I have talked to in the LGBTQIA community, if we're talking about gender pronouns and you screw up and say she instead of they, most of the time, as long as you say, I mean they, and you try and correct yourself, as long as you're trying to correct yourself and you're trying to do your best, most of the time people are not going to get angry. It's when you repeatedly get told, please refer to me as they, them, or as um, legally blind versus that blind lady. Um, as long as you're trying, the people, and, and this isn't everybody, but most people will say they're really trying to move forward in this work and they're going to get better. The more they practice, the more they screw up. The only way we can get through equity work is to fail. And that is very, very hard for the dominant culture. Whether that's white, whether that's male, whatever it is, it's very hard to hear that you are going to fail. You are going to screw this up. You are going to call somebody the wrong thing. You are going to act ableist at some point and that's okay it's not going to feel good you're not going to want to admit it but it's going to happen and so the best way to build trust is to number one continue to try number two know that you are going to screw up number three is do the work on your own time start reading the books start reading articles start diving into some of this stuff that you don't believe exists. If you're one of those people who's like, racism doesn't exist, start reading White Fragility. Start reading resources. Start digging into that belief that you think racism doesn't exist. Find out why people say racism exists. You have to do that work on your own and go out there and try to find resources, try to get to... Um, get to groups, book groups, all different kinds of groups that you can you can learn. You can push yourself. You can ask those questions about whatever it is and make sure that you're doing the work yourself. So 
Building that trust is continually doing the work, especially for white dominant culture like myself. Um, No, I'm not male, but I am white. This learning never stops. I've been doing equity work for, I would say a good five, six years. And I'm in a white fragility group right this minute. Um, We're at week four of 12 and reading white fragility. And I still read the book. I think this third time I've read the book and I'm still learning things that I didn't pick up. This work is never done. This work, you can always learn more about disability. You can always learn more about LGBTQIA. You can always learn more about race. You can always learn something about equity, and that's everybody. Just because I am a person with a disability does not mean I know everything about racism. Just because a person of color is a person of color doesn't mean that they act 100% um, correctly, (laughs) I guess is the best word, um, when they're talking about disability. No, every identity can learn about equity. Nobody knows everything, even if you are an LGBTQIA person, who is a person of color and has a disability. Guess what? There's other equity issues out there. there. And that person, though they have three minority identities, do not know the experiences of every LGBTQIA, every person of color, and every person with a disability. So we can always learn about other people's disabilities, identities, whatever it is. And so the trust comes when you can admit that and you can be vulnerable. And I can say, you know what? I was that person who thought that I wasn't racist because I date or I'm married to a black guy. I mean, like those things once in my mind existed. And I know now that yes, because of my whiteness, because of who I was raised to be and in the culture and in the community, I have racism tendencies that no, it's not, it's not, doesn't make me a bad person. It makes me white. And somebody who never learned about race as a child, as being, as I was raised. So we can always learn. We gotta be vulnerable enough to say, I don't know everything. Let me dig into that. Why do I believe that I'm not racist? Because, you know, why is that? And so you dig into it. Why do I believe that I don't discriminate uh, about disability? And why do people say I do? And so making sure and and digging into those things builds trust. When you sit in those conversations with people of minority communities and you're not defensive, that's a huge piece of learning about other um, communities and knowing that you don't know everything. How do you make a technical work environment work? for people with low vision or no vision? First and foremost, you learn what they need. You, uh, if there's nobody in your work environment currently with no or low vision, then you look at the different networks of um, people who are out there doing the work. If there is somebody in your organization, especially tech, um, the tech field, tech industry, talk to them say what have you used in the past what software have you used because there's lots of softwares there's lots of technology there's different preferences some people are using old technology but it works for them so they don't care so talking to that person um, and then 
figuring out within a work environment what the best practices are for people with disabilities, I mean, with low vision. And so if we look at what are the top three softwares used by visually impaired people? And so you always have those on deck. So if somebody comes in, you can say, okay, so you have a vision disability, what software do you, do you prefer? And then they can say, oh, I prefer ZoomText. And you're like, awesome. Uh, we already have that, or we have that, the ability to buy it. We know how much it costs, et cetera, et cetera. So when they're ready to start the job, you know exactly what they need. And you can move forward from there. So that's one piece. And then there are people, um, if you look back to the bonus episode, I believe it was episode 11. Um, there are people like Nick Peterson who do training for organizations and he is completely blind and he trains both organizations, but then also the people. So if you want to hire somebody who has a vision disability, but maybe they don't know what they need, they don't know how to operate computers, but you feel like they could really benefit your organization for some other reason. Um, you can hire people like Nick or whoever it is to assess the workstation, assess the systems that are in place, and be able to give you recommendations so that your work environment is more friendly or accessible for people with low vision. Um, as far as the physical space, as long as you let that person, especially no vision, uh, navigate. You can talk them through it, ask them again, hey, would you like a tour of the building? And so they can get a feel for where they are. They can memorize where things are placed. They can, you know, if they use a, a cane, a white cane, they're able to make sure they know, you know, the textures of the ground so they know where they are. There's a lot of things that uh, people with vision impairments uh, or, or completely blind use other than their eyes to know where they're at, to know how to navigate a workplace. So allowing them that time um, with or without people in the building, if it's able to be after hours, some people prefer that so that they can really explore versus running into people and, and really trying to get their, their bearings with everybody you know looking at them, etc. So talking to them, having that conversation, what do you need, um, what do you prefer, and let's see how we can make it work. How do you make accessibility plans for the workplace? So there are people called ADA coordinators that, and I am one of them, almost, but <laughs> COVID has taken my last class away from me. So um, people like myself that can come in and make transitions plans, we can do physical assessments of the space, not of people, um, physical assessments of the space that you're using, you can have them take a look at systems, softwares, policies, and make spaces accessible for people with disabilities. There's all kinds of guidelines that the ADA has set out in all their, in their physical space as well as policy recommendations. So you can bring somebody on and then slowly make changes to uh, meet those gaps or to fill those gaps that exist in your organization as well as in your physical space. So obviously, to completely remodel your whole building if it's not accessible, that's not usually feasible for companies and organizations. But to say, okay, this year we are going to update the doorways, and next year we are going to update the cubicle sizes, and the following year we are going to do this and that. So you, you lay out a plan according to what the assessment says. 
And so being able to go ahead and do that, create a plan, um, either with a professional or if you want to try and, I don't even know how you would do that if you don't have the education, but try and take a look at your, your building. Um, you can also do some, some changes before hiring somebody to make sure that those are, those are accessible. So those are a couple options there. How did you get into speaking and advocating? You know, I honestly feel like I saw the need and I knew I could fill it. A lot of people were curious about disability. I found a lot of people curious about my disability, particularly, and nobody ever felt comfortable asking me until they were really good friends with me. And there were so many people that were, you know, quote unquote, screwing it up or micro having microaggressions against me. Um, when really all they wanted to do was learn more about what I could and couldn't see. And so I started talking about it and it actually made me feel better. It actually empowered me to speak up for myself. And I always wanted to be a very positive person around this subject. That's been my choice. Yes, there are days I get really angry. Yes, there are days I get really frustrated around the things people say and do and how they treat me. But overall, I know that in order for people to really hear and understand and learn about disability and about um, me and my life situation and the people like me, uh, they can't feel threatened. They can't feel sh shame and blame and all of that. And I really do want people to hear the message I have to say and feel comfortable asking these six-year-old questions. And so that is how I got into it and I feel like my reward in that is seeing people really hear me and then make changes especially in their workplaces and start being aware of how those changes uh, affect their coworkers, even if they themselves don't have disability but um, they see that it's made their coworkers' lives easier at work or better at work and to have somebody as an ally at work it feels amazing and it feels amazing when somebody else steps up and says wow you know shouldn't we make this accessible or have we thought about accessibility in the in this process and so empowering people to think that way and bringing awareness to disability is why i continue to do it uh, as much as i do and I also saw that a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in the workplace do not include disability. And so I felt like there should be classes on everything, gender, uh, LGBTQIA, disability, ageism, sexism, all of those things. And so I, I knew I could fill that need. And so I, I felt like it was why I was put on this planet was to help people understand disability. Why are people of color? expected to go through race equity training that starts at the beginning. I believe this could be triggering. So this is a great question and something that a lot of white equity trainers have to consider in teaching and training around equity. And so this question actually came from a live class that I recently did and in this class, I was doing an introduction to equity. This was their very first equity training. And yes, I have my husband here with me. But I did a very, very brief introduction to the racial history of Oregon. 
Now, I did not teach it myself. I showed a video that um, really talked about some of the racism that has historically been, Portland has been known for. And so in doing that, I wanted to give everybody in the room a baseline discussion to, or point to really lead this conversation with, since none of them in the room had had a conversation together. Obviously, the people of color know the history of Portland, but the some of the white folks in the room had not. And so I wanted to set a baseline. So what do you think about this, Jameson? Hello, name's Jameson. Um, Emily's husband, also a person of color. I identify as African-American or black, whatever label that people want to use I'm comfortable with. Um, I do believe that as people of color, these trainings can be triggers, but you can't generalize saying, why do people of color have to sit through these things? I don't know the experiences of folks that come from Hispanic descent, Asian descent, all these other things. The things that we have to realize is that each of us has to be involved as a participant if we are capable of doing so without it causing so much trauma to us that we cannot be an active participant. Because when you really get back to the nuts and bolts of everything, all oppression is connected. The better we understand each other, the more we can engage and be part of the solution. We all want to create equity. We all want diversity to be recognized and embraced and respected. But in order to do so, we have to get our hands in the pot. And this gives us a platform and a stage to do so. So I do think as a person of color, and I only speak for myself as an individual, I cannot group a whole group of folks and speak for them. But as an individual, I do think I need to be part of this part of the solution. In order to do so, we have to have a baseline. Um, just like I didn't necessarily choose my skin color to be um, have more melanin than my wife. She didn't choose her skin color either. But we all have to have a humbleness about ourselves and a realization about ourselves and get past all the superficial things to really try to create this equitable environment we want. So we can't just always shove things off or say this person's white, this person's black, this person's disabled, this person's whatever. We have to realize that there is a human nature that bonds us all. And we have to really try to come together to understand that at whatever level people are at. So that way we can create this better environment we want to. Also with this, and I think Jameson will vouch for this here as we sit here together, is though Jameson has been in Portland 10 years now, and he understood that racism existed in Portland and that it's a fairly white city, he came from other areas where this is more diverse than other places he's lived. Also, he didn't understand the extreme racism that existed in Portland prior to maybe a year, maybe a year and a half? What do you... I don't know. All I'll say is I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. It's, it's, it's predominantly white there. There's a lot of Native Americans. 
there's a lot of Pacific Islanders. There's um, all different communities of color. There's black folks like myself. But my level of tolerance of just dealing with stuff is pretty high. Um, so when I came to Portland, this was just a melting, beautiful pot of people, even though <laughs> a lot of people describe it as a predominantly white place. People here are very understanding. Sometimes people want to learn so much that they kind of do step on toes in the process of learning. But we can facilitate that learning by just having a humbleness of self and really trying to be part of that solution. I mean, I, I'm just using a little bit of this circulatory speech, but really, if we want to create change, we need to be involved in it. And not every person of color knows the history. So like I said at the beginning, making sure that we create that baseline for people working here in Portland, that's important. And maybe they haven't seen it and maybe they haven't heard it. And so in your workplace, you have to create that that unity. And the facilitator, like me in this situation, or any facilitator, regardless of what color your skin is, should definitely preface potentially sensitive information with, if you need to get up and take a break, that is completely fine and up to you. So any of this information, any of these topics can be sensitive and, and re-traumatizing or traumatizing to folks. And so equity work is hard regardless of the skin color you live in. We need to make sure and take care of ourselves and take care of those in the room. So with that, I want to close everything up. I really wanted to address all these questions today, but also you got to talk here a little bit from Jameson today. And next week is our anniversary and you will be hearing from us about what it's like from both sides of our relationship, um, him being married to a person with a disability and me being married to a person of color and how we can relate, how can we not relate, and how do we find bridges to to join those identities and live happily together. So stay tuned for next week. We're excited about it. And we will close it up there. So have a great, great Monday. Have a great week. Uh, we are all still here in quarantine in Oregon, so hopefully you are all safe and well out there in the world, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you so much for joining me here today at Human Is My Label. Don't forget to subscribe, share this with your friends, families, and coworkers. Get out there, get comfortable with the uncomfortable, include everyone, and push yourself to be better every day. If you're interested in coaching or corporate training or learning more about RAPID, visit us at rapidorgan.org. That's R-A-P-I-D-O-R-E-G-O-N.org. You can find me at emily.curry on Instagram and all my other social handles are below. Have a great day and can't wait to see you next week.